Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays. The beginning of the Gospel about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. It is written in Isaiah the prophet, I will send my messenger ahead of you, who will prepare your way. A voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. And so John came, baptising in the desert region and preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him. Confessing their sins, they were baptised by him in the Jordan River. John wore clothing made of camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. And this was his message. After me will come one more powerful than I, the thongs of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptise you with water, but he will baptise you with the Holy Spirit. At that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptised by John in the Jordan. As Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my Son, whom I love. With you I am well pleased. At once the Spirit sent him out into the desert, and he was in the desert for forty days, being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals, and angels attended him. Well, do please uh, keep uh, your Bible open, and uh, as you do, I'll pray for us. God has spoken, and God is speaking. Uh, Those, Lord's Lord, are the words we've just sung, and so now as we turn to your word, the Bible, the word through which the prophets spoke, the word through which you speak, the Spirit-inspired word of God, uh, we pray that it would be true that we hear you speaking to us, to the very depths of our being, that we may never be quite the same, having opened your word this morning, and we ask it in Jesus' name, amen. Well, do please keep uh, Mark uh, chapter 1 open. And uh, the other thing that uh, you might like to do, indeed I'll encourage you to do, is to dig out the uh, little uh, handout so you can see where we're going uh, in the next few moments as well. Listen to uh, Sarah Rainey from the uh, Telegraph. The words will come up here. How many of you arrived bleary-eyed at the office on Monday morning? Did you stumble through the day on a stream of caffeine, desperately wishing you were anywhere but at work? preferably munching Quality Street in front of the TV. And when the day finally ended, did you collapse onto your sofa, feeling like you'd been hit by a bus, inhale your dinner and tuck yourself into bed by 9pm? Thought so. Like me, you have a serious dose of the New Year blues. January, even at its best, has few redeeming features. It's a month known for empty bank accounts, tight waistbands, winter vomiting bugs, failed detox regimes and cravings for things we're trying to give up. Christmas is over and everyone is now back at work feeling down and dreading the cold, wintry days looming ahead. Sarah Rainey, Happy New Year. (laughs) Sarah Rainey uh, describing that sense of blur, of life being mundane and ordinary. It does grab many of us at this time of the year. But I don't think it's January's fault. I think the hard truth is that That kind of niggling dissatisfaction with life is there for most of us most of the time. 
But we, we spice up our lives with the prospect of an exotic holiday or the ambition of a promotion or the dream of life getting better around the corner when we get through this phase of life. We tell ourselves that when we meet the new special person or when we overcome this present difficulty or illness, then life will be better. I reckon all year round and year after year, we're looking for whatever it is that will give our hearts that sort of uh, zing, make us sing. The only difference between January and the rest of the year is that at other times of the year, we mask that dissatisfaction by focusing on the thing we're looking to, that thing we think will give us the meaning of life that we so crave and that we all need. Uh, C.S. Lewis puts it like this, and it won't surprise you for me to say he puts it better than I ever could. Most people, if they really had learned to look into their own hearts, would know that they do want and want acutely something that cannot be had in this world. There are all sorts of things in this world that offer to give it to you, but they never quite keep their promise. The longings which arise in us when we first fall in love or first think of some foreign holiday or first take up some subject that excites us are longings which no marriage, no travel, no learning can really satisfy. You see, the problem is not January and the post-Christmas blues. The problem is we're looking in the wrong place to satisfy the longing of our hearts. Now, at this point, you know I'm going to say that Jesus is the one who can give us that, our heart's desire. You know I'm going to say that Jesus is the one who can give us that sense of this is what I've been made for, this is what life is all about. And yes, I am going to say that. So there we are, I've said it. But I'm going to say it because Mark says it in the first sentence of his book. Look with me at Mark chapter 1, verse 1. The beginning of the gospel about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Many of you here have heard that and read it yourselves many, many times. But do you see what this is on about? Mark is saying, here's the the gospel, the good news. Except it is so stronger than good news. It is momentous news. It is the best news you've ever heard. It's fascinating looking at opening sentences in literature. Here are a few that you might be familiar with. I wonder if you can... uh, Well, I say guess them if you know them. It is a truth universally acknowledged that a single man in possession of a good fortune must be in want of a wife. Anybody know where that is? Pride and Prejudice? Oh, very good. I knew you were well read a lot. Here was a bright cold day in April and the clocks were striking 13. George Orwell's 1984. There was no possibility of taking a walk that day. Jane Eyre, very good. And uh, this one, all children except one grow up. Peter Pan. Yeah, well done. There we are. Down in this corner. Very good. (laughs) Opening sentences are so important, authors spend a disproportionate amount of time writing them. Uh, A book's uh, opening sentence has to grab you and make you want to read on. And I love this one. This does that for me. It was the day my grandmother exploded. (laughs) That's the way Ian Banks begins his novel, The Crow Road. Makes you want to read on, doesn't it? Give the first sentence of Mark's book a thought and it should have the same impact on us. Here is the good news, the momentous news you've always wanted to hear, the news you've been waiting for all your life, whether you've known it or not. And this good news, the best news you've ever heard, is about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Now, if you were here last week, you'll remember this is a declaration that Jesus is King. 
Christ is not Jesus's surname. As I said last week, you know, if you're in the first century, you wouldn't sort of go to the Jerusalem phone book and look up Jesus's name under C, under Christ. It's not his surname. Christ is a title. The Hebrew equivalent is Messiah, the anointed one. And the kings of Israel in the Old Testament were called the Lord's anointed, the Messiah. They were also called son of God. So here in verse one are two titles of kingship. And the Jews back then, and actually now, if you meet a faithful and serious thinking Jew, the Jews then were waiting for, indeed longing for, the Messiah, the king, to step into history, to put right all the wrongs in the world, and to establish God's kingdom, a world of justice and peace and righteousness. Now, isn't that the longing we all have, and often And not least of all, this week after the events in Paris and this despicable attack on the offices of the satirical magazine Charlie Hebdo. Everything that followed, the attack on individuals, an attack on freedom of speech, it make you long for a better world. And whether it's that sort of stuff on the news or the bad stuff that happens in your own life, we know that longing of wanting the world to be a better place. First century Jews believed that the long-awaited Christ would deliver that. That's why they were waiting for him to arrive. But here's the thing. Throughout Israel's history, there'd been many kings, many Christs, many sons of God And they'd never actually delivered that. And so Mark's explosive first sentence is arresting. He says this time it's different. This Christ, this one son of God, this Jesus is like no other. He is unique. This is momentous news. He's going to deliver. Before we go any further, let's be honest. Anyone can make grand claims to be saviour of the world. People have in our lifetime. In the States, there was Jim Jones in the late 70s. Some of you might be old enough to remember him. People at your future congregation, Peter, will be old enough to remember him. Um, Do you remember the appalling tragedy of Jonestown? In the early 90s, David Koresh claimed to be a prophet and his leading of the Branch Davidian sect went horribly wrong, ending in the FBI siege of a ranch outside Waco in Texas. Remember that? On these shores, do you remember the name David Icke? Remember him, former Coventry City goalkeeper and then self-acclaimed son of the Godhead. It was obvious he was a fake because let's face it, if the son of God had been a goalkeeper, he wouldn't have played for Coventry City. (laughs) And he certainly wouldn't have let any goals in because we all know that the Lord saves. Um, It was in Liverpool Liverpool in the 80s that a poster was put outside a church that said that, the Lord saves, and underneath was the graffiti, the Lord saves, but Dalgleish nets the rebound. Anyway, that was, uh, that's got nothing to do with anything. It, except the point is this. We're all aware of charlatans. And we're right to be suspicious of people who make great claims about themselves. Especially when they're offering us the thing that we want and need and long for deep down. And so having made this great declaration that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, Mark gives us solid evidence to substantiate that momentous claim and he starts by referring to Israel's scriptures and if you're uh, on the handout we're on the first point that's scary isn't it it's okay Uh, that was a long introduction Israel's scriptures verses two and three Mark quotes from 
Isaiah, the greatest and primary prophetic book in the Old Testament. He also throws in a quote from Malachi. And so by quoting the first and the last prophetic books in the Old Testament, Mark is saying all the scriptures point to this moment and indeed, more importantly, to this person, Jesus. So he appeals to Israel's scriptures, what we call the Old Testament, as his first witness to prove that Jesus is the one we've all been waiting for. But what Mark chooses to quote from Isaiah and Malachi is explosive. Verse 2. It is written in Isaiah the prophet, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. A voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. Someone in the desert crying out, make way for the Lord, make way for the almighty God. And what do we read next? Verse four, and so John came. John the Baptist then is the voice in the desert And so the claim is that Jesus is the Lord of verse 3, that Jesus is God himself. Now this really does up the ante. Jesus is not just another human king of Israel, he is so much more than that. And of course when we think about it, he has to be. If Mark is saying in this explosive opening sentence if he's saying that Jesus is the one who's going to meet the deepest longings of our hearts and fulfill the long-held expectation that the Christ is going to deal with all the problems in this world if Mark is saying that this king is going to bring in a new world order a new kingdom of peace and righteousness and justice if this really is the best news I've ever heard then of course Jesus must be more than just a man or even more than just a prophet So Mark appeals to the Old Testament to prove that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And in doing so, he ramps up the stake saying, this Jesus is none other than the Lord God Almighty himself. He's not just another earthly king. He is the king of the entire universe and everything that has ever been made. Second, Mark appeals to Israel's prophets in verses 4 to 8. Again, verse 4 begins, and so John came. Uh, John the Baptist is the messenger of verse 2 who prepares the way for this king, the Lord Almighty. And John's significance is seen in the way he dresses. Look at verse 6. John wore clothing made of camel's hair with a leather belt round his waist and he ate locusts and wild honey. I don't know what that puts in your mind. In my mind's eye, John's fashion sense seems to come straight out of the 70s. Wearing a camel hair coat, to me, he's dressed like a hippie. He's a kind of new age, back to nature type, eating locusts and wild honey. But of course, I think that way because I was born in the 60s. Had I been born a Jew in the first century, I'd have known exactly what fashion statement John was making by dressing this way. And it wasn't anything to do with free love and campaigning to ban ban the bomb. No, in dressing this way, John was acting like one of God's prophets. And I put some references on the handout if you want to chase it up. John the Baptist is dressed like a prophet of Israel and yet look what he says of the one who would come after him. Verse seven, this was his message, John's message. After me will come one more powerful than I, the thongs of whose sandals I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptize you with water, but he with the Holy Spirit. See, John knows, John this this prophet knows that the one to come is so much more than a prophet. John, a great prophet himself, wouldn't even lick Jesus' boots, is what he's saying in verses seven and eight. 
Now look, here's the thing. The prophets of old didn't talk about the kings of Israel like that. Quite the opposite. Often the prophet had to come onto the scene to stand up to the kings of Israel because they were making such a hash of it. And so for a second time, as Mark points to another source, this time John the Baptist, to underline the claim that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, so that source makes an even greater claim that Jesus is greater still, that he is the greatest king Israel has ever seen. But apart from proclaiming the greatness of Jesus, this section does more. John adds more. Look again at verses 4 and 5. John came baptizing in the desert region and preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him, confessing their sins. They were baptized by him in the Jordan River. See the key words there, repentance, confession, baptism for the forgiveness of sins. John the Baptist is telling us how we become part of the king's kingdom. He's declaring how we get ourselves prepared to meet Jesus, who is the Lord Almighty. We know that from verses 2 and 3. He's preparing the way. He's telling us the way into the very thing we all so badly want and need. If you're new here this, this Sunday, welcome. If you've come back for the first time in a while, for whatever reason, welcome. And if that is you, you may be wondering how to connect with God. Wondering what life is all about. Well, here it is. Confess your sin, repent and be baptised. Getting to grip with what those words mean then are crucial. They are the keys, if I can put it that way, to open the door into God's kingdom. Desperately, it seems uh, many in the church, many church leaders have thrown away those particular keys Last year I was at a conference for clergy. We were put into small groups to discuss a number of questions and in that group one clergy person said this, I just tell people that Jesus loves them. They said, talk of repentance and sin is so negative. No, I don't tell people that they have to repent. I was a bit taken aback by that. I was flabbergasted as one after another in the group agreed with that person. This is very clear. Verse 2 John the Baptist was sent to prepare the way for the Lord. This is how we prepare to meet God. Verse 4, John came preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Uh, This person in this uh, clergy group said it's very negative to talk in those terms. When we think about it properly, it's not negative at all. Repentance is about a change of mind, a decision to stop going my own way, uh, to start going God's way, to turn around. That's not negative. That's sensible, logical. Just look at our world. Just look at the events of this week. Here we are living in a world that is full of catastrophe and heartache and pain. The human race hasn't done brilliantly, have we, when we look at our world? Here we are desperately trying to find meaning of life and the universe and everything. Year in, year out, flogging ourselves to find abundant, meaningful life. And all the while coming up against brick walls, going down blind alleys and getting nowhere fast. Whether it's at a personal level or on the world stage, we don't have the solution. I remember when I first started to look into Christian things over 30 years ago now. I did so because I was very aware that I didn't have the answers to the big questions of life. I was lost, heading in the wrong direction. That's why we need to repent, to turn around, to start again. 
Calling us to repent is no more negative than telling someone who is driving in the wrong direction to take a different route. If I'm lost and not sure of the way to go, I'm grateful when someone tells me which way to go. Not negative, it's just brilliant advice. Change the way you think, change the way you're going. And the next thing we need to hear in order to enter God's kingdom isn't negative either. Look again at verse four. John preached a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Baptism says we need to be cleansed. That's why water is involved. We need to be made clean. Forgiveness for our sin. Now again, to those who think that that talk of sin sounds negative, I want to say it isn't negative at all. Not if we think about it. But when we're really honest with ourselves, we know we're sinners, even if we don't use that language. We know we've failed one way and another. Turn with me to Mark chapter 7, if you will, where Jesus talks about this whole language of of, of cleaning. The whole chapter is about being cleansed. Mark chapter 7, page 1010. And in this chapter, all about being clean, becoming cleansed, Look at what Jesus says about why we need that. Verse 20 of Mark 7. Jesus went on, What comes out of a man is what makes him unclean, for from within, out of men's hearts, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. All these evils come from inside and make a man unclean. It's a pretty gruesome list. It contains some heavy-duty sin, that list. So what a surprise that it begins the way it does. See, if I'd written the list, I'd have started off with the big ones. Murder, terrorism, paedophilia, sexual immorality. What does Jesus start with, verse 21? For from within, out of men's hearts, come evil thoughts. Ever wondered why he starts the list like that? I reckon he knows what I'm like. I reckon he knows that I'm going to say I'm not guilty further down the list. And if he'd started higher up the list with those things, I'd have already started feeling quite good about myself and thinking I'm not really that bad, which is why he starts with my thought life. Because when I think about my thought life, when I look into it, I know I'm dirty. I know the things that go through my mind. And frankly, if you could read my mind, you wouldn't want me to be your vicar anymore. Look at my thoughts and there's no question my life needs to be cleaned up. I'm dirty and I haven't even got beyond the first point on the list here. So you see, as we go back to chapter one, see why this talk of being cleansed from sin isn't negative. It's good news. It's great to hear. When I'm honest with myself, I know the sin in my life. I know I'm dirty. So it's good news to hear that there's a way for me to be cleansed. When did getting clean ever sound like a bad thing? The last time I balked against getting clean, I was a teenager who hadn't discovered girls yet. Since then, I love getting clean. I love having a shower after a long workout. I love having a soothing bath when I'm hot, sweaty and dirty after a long muddy walk or a hard day's DIY. Not that I do a lot of DIY, but when I do, I like having a bath. Getting clean's a brilliant thing. Problem is, when I try to get myself spiritually clean, I can't do it. I've tried turning over a new leaf and I know I'm not alone. 
I know how many people at this time of the year have tried to clean up their act only to find that by the end of January there isn't much improvement. And even when there is some progress, there's always another area of my life that needs to be sorted out, and after that, another and another. So this message of baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins isn't negative, it's brilliant. It's a message of someone who loves me enough to step in to clean up my life. And listen to this, it's the message of someone who hasn't given up on me despite what I am. Dirty. That's not negative, that's gloriously refreshing. Best news I've ever heard. And look where all this happens, end of verse 5. It's at the Jordan River. I must have read this chapter many, many times and I'd never seen this point until this week. Uh, Jordan River might not mean much to us, but it is loaded with significance for any self-respecting first century Jew. The Jordan was the river that the children of Israel crossed to enter the promised land. Here's why this is the most momentous news we've ever heard. The Lord has come, and as I repent, as I stop going my own way in my own life, and as I confess my sins and ask Jesus to clean me, he takes me into the promised land, into his kingdom, giving me that for which I have always longed for, that for which I was made. That's the claim. You see, these are big claims. So... Mark turns first to Israel's scriptures, to the Old Testament, then to Israel's prophets, to John the Baptist, and last but by no means least, Mark points us, Mark points us to Israel's God, verse 9. At that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. As Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove, and a voice came from heaven. A voice from heaven, it is the voice of God the Father and of Jesus he says, you are my son whom I love, with you I am well pleased. Here is the ultimate authority, a voice direct from heaven itself. And once again it declares that Jesus is not just another king, but he is the unique son of God, uniquely loved by the Father and uniquely pleasing to him. This King Jesus is like no other. But once again, note the detail in verse 10. As Jesus is baptised, the Holy Spirit descended upon him like a dove. Now those of us who've been around Christian things for a while won't bat an eyelid at that. We're familiar with the great paintings from Renaissance art depicting this scene. And today we've often seen the Holy Spirit pictured as a dove. This is no surprise to us. But for the first century Jew, this was packed with significance. In the sacred writings of Judaism, there is only one place where the spirit is like a dove, and that's back in Genesis chapter 1 and the account of the creation. So Tim Keller explains using these words. Genesis chapter 1 verse 2 says that the spirit hovered over the face of the waters. To capture this vivid image, the rabbis translated the passage for, for the Targums like this. And the earth was without form and empty and darkness was on the face of the deep and the spirit of God fluttered above the face of the waters like a dove and God spoke, let there be light. So he's taking us right back to Genesis chapter one. He's taking us right back to creation and there were three parties operating at the creation, God, God's spirit and God's word. And here in Mark chapter 1, as Jesus is baptised, we, we see the same three persons involved. God the Father declaring, this is my son. God the Spirit descending like a dove. And of course, God's word, Jesus. 
And linking creation with Jesus' baptism tells us that just as God created the world for us to know him and to be in in a loving relationship with him, so when Jesus walks onto the pages of history, he came to do a work of recreation, of recreating a broken world and a rebellious people and bringing us back into a loving relationship with God, the thing we were made for in the first place. It's momentous. Jesus, the king, is the way that God will bring in, usher in his kingdom. Jesus is the way everything will be recreated. That's the great message of Christian hope. Not just a patching up of this world. Not a command to try harder. But the promise of a completely new beginning with a completely new world order, a completely new kingdom. That's why this is good news, momentous news, the best news we've ever heard. Jesus will recreate everything and one day in the future he will usher in this new creation. If you're here for the first time or at church for the first time in a long time, let me say again, we're thrilled to have have you here. Welcome. You've chosen a good day to come because we've been looking at Jesus and he is the one to look at indeed to look to to meet all your deepest longings he this king who is none other than God himself he is our heart's desire whether we realize it or not and he can deliver he can give us what we've always longed for and he can give it to us into eternity For many of us here, we know this already. We are convinced that Jesus is this king. We have already signed up. We've taken the keys of repentance and baptism and walked through this door into his kingdom. So let me ask you, if you're in that category, at the beginning of this year, are you, are we, thinking rightly about Jesus? Do we really think that he is the king, the supreme king over everything. And here's, if we know whether we really believe it or not, are we basing our whole lives on that fact? Do we really believe that he will give us what we really need? Or are we putting our hope in other things to satisfy our longings? I'm talking to the committed Christian now. Have we looked to something else to give us what is lacking? We're looking to real estate or exotic vacations or career or another person or whatever it is. Do we have the New Year January blues because we failed really to look to Jesus, the King, to be the one who can give us what we really need? Well, this New Year, remedy that by getting up close and personal with Jesus. Be sure he is the king of every aspect of your life. Ensure that he is directing and influencing every decision in life. It's the best way to live because he's the only one who can deliver. And be reassured it's the best way to live because the Old Testament, the prophets and God himself tell us that Jesus is the king of all. He's the way into God's kingdom and the one who will recreate and restore all things one day to be the way they should be. And that really is the best news we've ever heard. Let's pray together.
Our loving Father, in a week when just across the channel we've been witnessing some appalling events, when as we've turned our uh, televisions on and seen the news, I guess all of us at some level have had that longing for a better world. So we thank you. We thank you that uh, we're not just dreaming an impossible dream. That we're not just hoping for something that's never going to come. But that as we look to Jesus, we can look to the one who will restore all things one day. Who will put all wrongs right. And who will take those of us who enter through repentance and the confession of sin and baptism and washing into that kingdom now and into eternity when it will be realised and fully realised. And so we pray that we would be those who not only declare Jesus as king now, but live as if he were our king always. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.